Moderating our first panel, the Consumer Protection Challenge, is yet another Coin Center expert. We just can't get enough of these guys. Peter Van Valkenburg is the Coin Center's Director of Research. He holds a law degree from NYU, and he's also a self-taught computer software engineer, which means that uh, he has all the things you need these days to wrest control of the entire planet. <clears throat> for now, we're just going to try to limit him to taking over these proceedings in just for an hour. <laughs> so, ladies and gentlemen, Peter Van Valkenburg. Thank you. Thank you. So, um, this, uh, this first panel we're going to focus on, uh, one of these major issues that uh, Jerry Brito talked about in, in his opening remarks, uh, consumer protection. Um, I've heard it said that the, the sort of original sin that uh, is the rationale for regulation of, say, money transmission or banks is this, this custody over other people's funds, this idea that you are uh, holding yourself as someone, holding yourself out as somebody who uh, people can trust with their money uh, and, um, and therefore you are in this position of trust, and therefore some sort of safety and soundness, solvency, uh, disclosure, cybersecurity possibly regulation is necessary to ensure that people don't end up hurt. Um, so we have a great panel to discuss these issues. Um, immediately to my left is uh, Margaret Liu, who's the Senior Vice President and Deputy General Counsel of the Conference of State Bank Supervisors. The CSBS has been working on a model, uh, model framework, basically, for helping the states as they come to the question of how are we going to regulate digital currency companies uh, as compared to, say, money transmitters. And um, Margaret has been leading that effort. We have Marco Centori, who's partner at Pillsbury Winthrop, and also the Global Co Policy Council at Blockchain. Um, Blockchain.info, for those of you who are not familiar, is one of the leading software wallet providers. So this is a company that helps you store your own Bitcoin and do other things with it. It's not a company that, per se, is anything like a traditional bank, which actually holds something for you. They write software. Um, to his left is Melanie Shapiro, who's the CEO of Case, uh, or Case Wallet. Um, Melanie's company makes hardware devices uh, that help people secure their own uh, cryptocurrency and also other uh, innovations in the space. And to her left is Dana Syracuse, who is uh, now counsel at Buckley Sander and was formerly the, formerly the associate general counsel of the New York Department of Financial Services, which for those of you familiar with regulation in the space of cryptocurrencies, was one of the early uh, regulators to really uh, make an effort trying to understand these technologies and to develop a framework for regulating them from a consumer protection, cybersecurity, and AML standpoint with their bit license. So I'd like to um, start with a discussion, particularly from Melanie and Marco, who come from the industry side of things, about how the technology that lies behind Bitcoin, cryptocurrencies, and blockchains can be leveraged to protect consumers, uh, whether that be by self-storage for people who want to store their own, by having joint control over funds through things like multi-sig, um, whether there's a possibility for algorithmic regulation for putting a lot of 
protections into the protocols that people utilize. And then I want to ask, are these te uh, techniques meaningfully different than the protections that are already offered by legacy financial services? So are we really talking about something new here, or is there just hype and branding on it? Oh, God, he's looking at me. I guess I'll start. <laughs> um, so the thing that's unique about Bitcoin is that possession is 100% of the law. So if you have the keys that are associated with Bitcoin, um, you have the authority to move that Bitcoin around or whatever um, that Bitcoin is tied to on the blockchain. Uh, so traditionally, at the very early stages of Bitcoin, we saw that there was uh, single purpose, single private keys associated with Bitcoin, which basically just meant that there was one key, and that one key, if you had it, you had the Bitcoin. Um, then we innovated a little bit, and we got multi-sig in about 2013. Um, and multi-sig just means that there are um, for example, two of three keys that are needed to make a transaction take place. So three keys are in existence, and you need two of those to make anything happen. If you have one, it's basically the same as having zero. And the way that we see this taking place within the Bitcoin industry is um, oftentimes Bitcoin providers, similar to ourselves actually, um, we'll hold one of the keys for our clients, and then they'll hold the key um, and then a third party will also hold the third key. Um, and for general consumers, we're seeing that um, people are using our technology to just secure their own Bitcoin. Um, we have a Bitcoin that lives, or I'm sorry, a private key that lives on our dedicated hardware. We have a private key that lives in the cloud that's encrypted with something that lives on the device. And we've partnered with a cold storage company um, that holds the, co the cold storage key if anyone ever loses their um, loses their device. On the other side of the equation, we're working with financial institutions to use the device to secure other kinds of transactions on the blockchain. Um, so for example, if there is a company that's taking an investment uh, from multiple different parties, each one of those um, key, or in, and that transaction is going to be hashed onto the blockchain, um, each one of those parties will have a key, and the transaction doesn't take place until all, all parties are in agreement on the terms. Um, and that's something that we're kind of seeing as an evolution within the Bitcoin industry from general consumer purposes to more um, fintech and institutional use cases. That's actually a, a great segue. So as, as Peter said, uh, I'm Marco Santori. I lead the digital currency and blockchain technology team at Pillsbury Winthrop. It's a global firm. I'm here representing one of my clients, uh, Blockchain, who I act as policy counsel for. Blockchain is, uh, well, I should say, Melanie gave a great example of one of these new uh, and truly excellent uses of blockchain technology, which is multi-signature. Um, there are other ways to uh, achieve some of, the same, some of the same goals, and one of them that blockchain employs is something called client-side encoding, <laughs> client-side encoding, where um, instead of giving your private keys, your access credentials to a third party to care for your cryptocurrency, your digital assets, what have you, and, to trend, and for them to transact on your behalf on the Bitcoin network or on any blockchain network, you can do that yourself. You can do that yourself directly. The way the blockchain works, the blockchain wallet works, is actually it's elegant in, in, from, from a regulatory perspective. Your, uh, your keys are not stored by blockchain.info. Instead, you log on to their website, and they push a wallet to you, wallet software. You open that wallet software up in your browser, you do everything you'd like to do by interacting directly with the Bitcoin network through your browser. 
that wallet, when you're finished, is then closed and encoded and then uploaded to blockchain. So blockchain never stores your private keys. They store a tokenized version of an, an encrypted tokenized version backup of your private keys. So really, they're no different than a sort of specialized Dropbox or a Trezorite or whatever backup service you, of your choice. Um, but this is just, these are just two examples uh, of the way that digital currency and blockchain technology is really turning this paradigm of custody, of control, turning these paradigms on their, on their heads. This is really a story of something that uh, my colleague Patrick Mark, I, I think it's a phrase he uh, popularized, if not coined, but this notion of algorithmic governance on blockchain and Bitcoin. Um, what, what we're doing as an industry, or what I think a, a lot of us are hoping to achieve, is being able to govern a new industry using technology, using mathematics, encryption, and achieve those policy goals that with legacy financial services, it took regulation-based governance. Now, is that to say there's going to be no regulation required for cryptocurrency businesses and for blockchain technology? No, I don't think that's what it says. Uh, maybe it turns out that way and the libertarians in the room are all happy, but I, I think that it's probably not the case. I think probably we're, we're seeing what we're seeing is algorithms and algorithmic governance generally going most of the way there so that we don't need the same kind of regulations on blockchain networks to achieve the same policy goals that we did on legacy networks. Now, I, I, I think it's fair to say that, that, that these are, both of you represent some very novel and um, newer uses of the technology, I think, to, to provide these higher security features or this ability to self-store on some level or use multi-sig technology. There are other models out there, though, uh, are there not? Um, can you speak to companies that do actually hold people's Bitcoins for them as opposed to helping them store their own? And that's really dangerous. In fact, um, I was a victim of a hack it was a big story. I'm sure all of you have heard about it. Um, about uh, two years ago, Mt. Gox. Um, basically, this was a company that had all of your Bitcoin, all of your keys, and you, until you converted it out into fiat currency, you really had no control of it. The problem with this is that if their central storage unit ever gets hacked um, and they have your private key, which if you have a database of thousands and thousands of private keys that control potentially millions and millions of dollars worth of Bitcoin, that's an incredible target for a hacker. And as soon as they get in, they have complete control. The other really scary part about this is the internal fraud that we've um, seen happen. Basically, um, even if you're an internal employee and you have access to that database, there is zero way to connect me as the secretary or an engineer of a company to the theft of these private keys. Um, and then I go home and I you know, liquidate them or um, I move them around to other accounts. So we've, we saw a lot of that. I mean, in 2014, 97% of Bitcoin wallets were controlled by one private key. Um, and a large majority of those, the ownership of that key was in the place of the, the company itself. And I think one of the things that we're seeing and one of the greatest things about our industry, and I'm sure um, a lot of people in this room will kind of um, understand this, we want to see some of the control be taken away from um, the big central authority. Um, in this case, it's Bitcoin companies. Um, we want the consumer to also have 
uh, some control over, the, it's their funds, right? It shouldn't just be in the control of the, the holding party. And that's where multi-sig comes in and, and basically you can share control and share custody of um, Bitcoin or have it all yourself if you wanted to. Yeah, blockchain.info, uh, the name of the company is blockchain, uh, conveniently. Uh, <laughs> blockchains has a registered uh, trademark. Be your own bank. That is that is part of the philosophy of the company. Um, in in this country, we we in, in this country we actually trust our banks, uh, which is a strange thing to say, uh, especially given their history over the, over the last five years. But if or six or eight years, if you consider you know that in, that relationship in relation to the way that countries and people living in the southern hemisphere and or in Eastern Europe feel about their money, we actually do trust our banks implicitly. Um, and so we're seeing tremendous growth um, globally, in, especially in those areas. Blockchain is the world's largest provider of wallet software. We have almost 7 million wallets now. Um, and the way that we do this is to put, is to, this is the democratization of finance, where we're, we're putting control of money back in people's hands. Right? Instead, of giving them, instead of giving our money to banks to control, and they transact with it at our request, if you have a blockchain wallet, you're transacting with it directly. You have control of your funds. You can store the same bitcoins in a blockchain wallet at the same time as you're storing them, the very same bitcoins, in any other industry standard wallet. So you're not giving control of your private keys to somebody else. As a result, there's no honeypot. There's no central um, store of funds to be hacked. If you were to hack blockchain.info, you'd be able to take down our banner on the internet. You'd be able to take it down. You know, great. You, 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 you don't get any funds. Um, now contrast that with the model used by um, the exchanges of the world, the custodial exchanges. Contrast that with the custodial wallets of the world. They used to be companies, our, our, our team has been doing this since 2011, since before there was Bitcoin law. But there used to be, back in those days, custodial wallets. Their whole job was to hold your Bitcoins for you. There are very few of those now. If any now, that's usually just one feature of a larger exchange uh, functionality. But those companies that take custody of your funds, um, their, their whole job is to protect your money, like banks have been trying to do for many, many years. Um, at blockchain, we don't see that as a foolish endeavor. We don't see that as the wrong model. We just don't see it as the model that is currently underserved out there. And we think that the model of people having control over their own funds is the most underserved model. We also think it has these great, um, these great benefits for mitigating systemic risk. That those just ri those risks are simply not. Because there's no hypothecation. There's no. Um, there's no hypothecation, yeah. and you and there's. Of course, it's a lot of dead capital. Although that's probably more of a question for. Well, that's a Bitcoin problem, right? <laughs> that is that is that is a Bitcoin problem. You don't have credit. You don't have uh, fractional reserve banking. You can't do any of those things. But, but I, I'd like to bring in uh, I'd like to bring in Dana and Margaret now. Um, so, as Marco said, uh, we're not talking about a world where there is no uh, role for government regulation. What we're talking about is a world where there are new opportunities for self-regulation, new opportunities for technology to secure things for people better than perhaps uh, a, a business that you put full faith and credit in or full trust in. Um, 
Where do we see uh, a role still very prominent for government in this space, for regulators in this space? And also, what specific efforts are underway uh, to figure out how to reconcile the consumer protections that were absolutely imperative in the traditional financial space with the consumer protections that will still be important, though they may be somewhat different in the digital currency or virtual currency space? Either of you. Go ahead. Sure. Uh, so Dana Syracuse, formerly with the New York State Department of Financial Services, now with Buckley Sandler. Um, you know, I, I, it, it, this is very interesting to hear, and, and, and I agree with it whole, wholeheartedly. I think that for Bitcoin has an, uh, an incredible opportunity to bring into the fold the unbanked, the underbanked. And what you're seizing upon is you know, the differentiation in, in the regulation between who is a technology company uh, who is providing the technology, and then who is actually uh, providing financial services or products. And the model for regulation uh, is to regulate those who are acting as financial intermediaries, providing financial services or products. So that would be the more traditional wallet companies, the more, the more uh, traditional exchanges. Um, you know, New York has the bit license, which is up and running right now. Uh, several other states are looking at ways uh, to modify existing money transmission statutes uh, to see if there's a, a possibility of regulating um, regulating it that way. But the thing is, this is truly a borderless technology. It's, it's the money of the internet. And it really, uh, because of the, the, the cross-border nature, the international nature, I don't think it really lends itself necessarily to a 50-state approach. But... Um, you know, the extent to which Bitcoin is being used as a currency and the extent to which there are entities that are stepping in and, and providing essentially payment services, that's something that's traditionally regulated at the state level. So that's kind of why... We, Through money transmission? Correct. Or, yeah. And that's kind of why we, we are where we are. Um, you know, the, the CSBS, and, 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 and Margaret can talk about it, uh, has a model framework uh, that is out there. And then the Uniform Law Commission right now also has a, um, a piece of uh, model legislation that could be going, uh, could be finalized sometime this summer. You know, what, one thing that, that I always hear about is um, how Bitcoin can be self-regulating or blockchain can be self-regulating. And that's something that quite honestly makes me a little bit nervous um, because to me, everything that we're doing here it's new, it's very new, but it also really isn't. And the extent to which there are, uh, there are existing pieces of legislation, existing regulations in place uh, that kind of would already regulate the, or legislate the old world analog, I think that's good. Um, I think that you want to be cautious about what you wind up inviting. Uh, because when a regulator hears or, or a legislature hears, okay, well, the blockchain can be self-regulating. The next thing that they're going to say is, why don't we insert a piece of code uh, that would have some sort of consumer protection aspect? And I think there is where you have the real chilling effect. I think there is where you would have a real possibility of stifling innovation. Do, do you think there's a real risk of that? Do you think that's, a, that's, that's something that... that do you think that's a gear you see turning in regulators' heads when, yeah, when, yeah. when people talk when people talk about regulating the blockchain? Yeah, be, be, because you know it, it's not something it's not some, it's something that's ill understood. I think 
Um, and it's something where, uh, in someone's mind, it could the, the, a switch could be flipped where they say, well, that's potentially an easy fix then. Um, and I, I think therein lies the danger. Margaret, um, so your organization works with regulators from the several states. Um, you have, I think, a, a great uh, view from 30,000 feet of how every state is coming to this process. I'm sure at first it's a, it's a bewildering and confusing process for a regulator that's traditionally working with a Western Union or a MoneyGram. Um, how, do they, how do they deal with uh, understanding the technology and then what specific issues with figuring out how to actually do consumer protection regulation do you see the states encountering? And then what work is the CSBS doing in this area? Well, thanks, Peter. Uh, so as Peter mentioned, and Dana also did, CSBS is the Washington-based policy organization for state regulators. And our members regulate uh, not just um, non-depository financial services providers such as money transmitters, but also banks and a, and a broad range of financial services providers in the depository and non-depository space. So they, they have a unique view um, and a diverse portfolio. And, and so it's, um, sometimes we use the term, it's, it's sort of an ecosystem in terms of financial services and, and credit. Um, and so they see that different business models meet different needs or are set up to meet different needs um, in the marketplace. Um, this, the issue around virtual currency and broader fintech is something that regulators have been spending a lot of time on. Um, but it is not easy to, to wrap your head around it. Um, for for you know, regulators who understand financial services um, but have to understand different types of, you know, structures and businesses and multiple different regulatory regimes that they're required to, um, to implement um, and interact with federal regulators. Uh, it, it is a big challenge and, um, and it's something that we've been thinking about a lot because the, the, the issue and problem with legislation and regulation is that it, is, um, it has been historically and currently by its nature set up to fix the last problem. Um, and it is not by its current structure and nature um, necessarily forward-looking. And so the, the challenge for regulators is to, is to build in, or how do you, and I have no answer to this question, um, though we're thinking about it a lot, how do you structure a regulatory regime um, to contemplate uh, what these guys are talking about now, uh, but also what the Marcos and Melanies are going to be talking about in the blockchain space or in the Bitcoin space um, two or three years from now, because the pace of change is unbelievable. You know, the new entrants that come and, frankly, that go, right, the business models that come and go, um, creates a big challenge. So I'm kind of setting up the problem, and I don't really have a good answer to, no. the, to the solution, although I will say that the idea of, um, you know, self-regulation is, is challenging. Um, it sounds um, great from an efficiency standpoint and from an industry standpoint, but when you think about the responsibilities that regulators have, um, that the state legislatures and that federal legislatures pose on them, um, you have to, self-regulation can never truly be self-regulation. Um, you, you have to strike a balance in terms of the amount of self-regulation you have and the amount of regulation or oversight you have to see that those who say that they know how to self-regulate actually know what they're doing and are doing what they say they're doing. It's interesting that in the context of self-regulation, we, we normally think of like FINRA or something right. like that. 
uh, which is a, a, a multi-company association that develops best practices and standards and then, and then right. watches itself. What we're talking about, uh, which is maybe an added wrinkle, and this was, yeah. this was what I was trying to get to at the beginning, is, is this really different than legacy financial services or is this the same old thing? But it yeah. seems as though what we're sometimes talking about with self-regulation is I'm being regulated by, by entropy, by the fact that I can't, I can't guess this magic number that would give me the bitcoins as the company. I, I can't, because it would literally be like counting the grains of sand in the ocean. Uh, that seems like something that might be truly unique. A bank could never have locked themselves out of their own vault. Um, so. I think you have to be able to, that's true, and I think in a lot of ways it's the same as it used to be, but we're also introducing a lot of new problems and opportunities. But at the same time, I do think that the companies themselves, they have to be able to report something. Um, they have to be able to report that their technology is what they say it is. Mm -hmm. um, it's very easy for anyone to say, yes, our, our algorithms do this, um, we store keys here, uh, or... Our algorithm sends the keys right back to you, whatever. Or, but 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 this is so hard because uh, do do we expect um, do we expect a a, a, a regulator to, to dive into GitHub and look at lines of code and say, all right, you, your advertising said you did this, but we looked at the actual code and yeah, the key actually, ended up on three different servers. I don't see why I don't see why technologists shouldn't be part of the regulation. I think that's the only way to truly regulate something is when you understand it. It's just basically like an, an audit service. You can have a third party auditor um, and you know that could be a, a, a part of the group that sets the, the regulation. I, I agree with that. I, th I think that that needs to be a larger piece of the development of reg tech. Yeah. Um, I think that regulators need to become more savvy in, in, in those areas, as well as you know broader the broader area of cybersecurity. Um, you know, just picking up on what, what Margaret Margaret was talking about. I, I think that you know, just speaking for you know what 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 happened uh, in New York. The, the development of the bit license was a two-year process. When the process began, um, multi-sig didn't even really exist. So that meant when the second draft came out, the, the idea was that, that you would have some sort of adaptation to that. Um, you know, the development of the bit license represented uh, you know, that, that entire two-year study. And I, I think that you want regulators trying to understand the space. You want regulators stepping in, trying to understand blockchain, um, trying to understand Bitcoin, which is only the, the first implementation of the blockchain technology. Because what you want to prevent, uh, and I think this will, the, the, this, is a, this is a real danger, uh, is regulators regulating in the face of a crisis. Uh, something, some tragic event occurs, and it's traced back to Bitcoin. It was funded through Bitcoin. You would see regulators clamp down so quickly, and if well, and to some extent, so I, I remember Ben Losky, uh, who was the head of the DFS during the bit license process, saying that they felt they felt that they needed to act faster because of Mt. Gox. Yeah. Was was that prescient in your mind? As you, uh, I, I think the the notion that okay, Mt. Gox has occurred. Um, had Mt. Gox had adequate capitalization, had there been adequate regulatory controls in place. Would that have prevented it? Uh, I, of course, that I've, of course that that's that, that's the kind of thing that's that's 
uh, sitting in a regulator's head. How, how could it not? But that's not regulating. Is that regulating in the shadow? No, of the no, no. I, yeah. that, I mean, that was that was. A, I, I'm I'm talking about you know Bitcoin is traced back to some sort of terrorist financing issue. Right. Um, I, well, and that's that's that that's very interesting because I think so. Our panel's remit is to talk about consumer protection, but I do think that there's a lot of fuzziness <laughs> in between whether we want to regulate to protect consumers or whether what we're interested in is is uh, financial surveillance. Uh, panel later will be discussing that. Do, do the issues uh, become confused, or, or is there synergy to the extent that that makes sense there? Synergy between... So, if, uh, when a state approaches a question of how do they regulate these things, are they mostly looking at it from a consumer protection standpoint, or are they thinking about AML? I mean, the, the bit license had some AML... Yeah, I, I think that you can't really say you know, the, the state regulator or any regulator doesn't only think about one specific silo of their regulatory responsibility. Consumer protection, though, in the state area um, is a high priority because a lot of the non-depository um, licensing laws um, and regulations are focused on consumer protection. Um, and, and when you look at what CSBS did, a lot of it was tied to consumer protection, but you can't disaggregate that from the health of the, the system, whatever marketplace the regulator is responsible for, right. um, for regulating. Um, well, this, this gets to a, a jurisdictional question on some level because AML, uh, any money laundering and t- anti-terrorist financing is usually done at the federal level. But the supervision is, um, is done by the, the states. Yeah, by the states. So right. you, have a, you have a policy setting organ at the federal level, and then you have enforcement at the state. Right, right. Well, and we, what happens is it's actually um, it's a partnership with state regulators and FinCEN and IRS, who does a lot of the examination work um, for, for FinCEN. And what you have in place are um, regulatory sort of cooperative agreements and information sharing agreements with, um, with FinCEN and, and the state regulators. You know, I think the consumer protection issues um, the, and, and priorities, they're really the same in a lot of senses. Um, and it's not as if um, you are trying to serve different consumer protection goals with virtual currency than you are with any other type of financial services. Um, it, it's still the same things you worry about. The way, things, the way bad things happen could be different um, and uh, are obviously different. Um, but that's not to say that technology and you know, Dana's term reg tech isn't something that I think has application in this area um, and in other areas. But uh, isn't it a lot of it just also about consumer um, information and expectations too? Yeah. Although isn't there something fun, I mean, get Melanie and Marco into this, isn't there something fundamentally different between writing a piece of software that is responsible for the user securing their own funds and actually holding the funds for the user. So in that sense, there is something fundamentally different in that there was no way for Bank of America, online banking was just a, a better telephone to your bank. You know, This is something seems tangibly different. And I'm not sure how those companies fit into, they certainly don't seem like money transmitters to me. Right. Granted, PayPal doesn't seem like a money transmitter to me either. Um, but I, mean, I think it's there's a lot of similarities, but at the same time, I mean, it's in the company's hands to figure out what sort of information they want to collect about their consumers, um, whether you're collecting just address and name, date of birth, that kind of information, or if you're going to request social security numbers or what have you. Fairness, yeah. <laughs> sure, we do. <laughs> um, at the very beginning, I mean, the Bitcoin ecosystem was made up of people that that were vehemently opposed to that. I mean, that was a 
that would turn anyone off of, to your company. Um, but the reality is to see this technology grow to a more mainstream use case and an institutional use case, we have to be able to somehow prove who's using these services. And I have to say, the bit license was very, I think a lot of it was very reactive. But by the time it came out at the very end, I mean, we changed our architecture um, when we first started hearing about the bit license. That's why we went multi-sig. And that's why we partnered with a Bitcoin exchange rather than building our own exchange software and letting people buy and sell Bitcoin on it. Um, so I think it obviously had a huge impact on us, but in a really positive so, way. So you, you partnered because you believe that by holding all the keys on the hardware that you manufacture? We never wanted to hold all of the keys. Mm -hmm. We um, ultimately decided to partner with a, Bit, a large Bitcoin exchange to do the buying of selling in Bitcoin from the hardware itself instead of building exchange software, which would have meant that we held um, people's... Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Right. And so I think that that was a, obviously a technical decision we had to make, and it was something that took us a lot of development time. But the reality is it ended up being the best thing for us. And so, yes, when the bit license was just coming out, people were very angry about it and very reactive. But the reality is that it did something for companies in New York that forced them to really take a look at, wait, do I really want to be holding people's Bitcoin? Is that a good idea? Right. Although this is, this, is, this is where it gets very complicated in my mind is multi-sig is a, a magic word where we can say it and say it's safe, we don't hold anything, we don't need to be regulated under a money transmission model or anything like that. There are configurations of multi-sig Am where I correct? That's not true, yeah. Where that's not true. So, Absolutely. so what does a what does a New York Department of Financial Services or a California Department of Business Oversight uh, need to do to figure out the line between regulated companies and non-regulated companies? Can I, can I just okay? I, I think there is an answer to that. Yeah. I think I I don't think this is one of those unknowable questions. I don't think this is uh, one of those things that should keep regulators up at night. I know why it might, but ultimately, having dealt with more of these companies than any lawyer that I know, there is an answer. And it's to wait and watch and learn. So regulators don't get it today. They don't. There's not a single regulator I know on the state level or on the federal level that truly understands the contours of these issues. I know I don't understand the contours of these issues. Nobody in this room and nobody in front of you right now understands the contours of these issues. To think that you do is hubris. This is the problem with technology-specific regulation. And I had never been on the record supporting the bit license. Mm. Uh, I, I was asked to testify, and I submitted testimony uh, to, the, to the New York Department of Financial Services cautioning against technology-specific regulation. We saw it anyway. Um, and I think that the story of the bit license is, is a great microcosm of this, and that it's, it's been a difficult one. It's been a challenging, it's, it's a challenging story to read. It's a challenging story to experience, representing a lot of the companies who have since moved out of New York because of this. Um, and expensive. And, and an expensive one. So I think, yes, has it had positive effects on the industry? Absolutely. Anybody who doubts that hasn't been paying attention. Right. Now, now there are... Well, I say banks, there's really just one. You can come talk to me after about it. In, in this country who are actually knowingly banking Bitcoin businesses at scale in the United States, they, can now, they now have a question to ask. Do you have a good license? Do you need uh, a license in New Hampshire and Washington and Texas? Um, this, is, this has granted that it hasn't put a cloak and any imprimatur of legitimacy on any company except for one. The DFS has granted one uh, bit license in this uh, two-year process. Um, there are 19, 20-something outstanding currently, at least, 
Um, what it's done is put a cloak uh, of it, this, this, this cloak of le legitimacy, this imprimatur, on a hanger in a very well-decorated closet. There it is. Um, and certain companies may wear that. They may don it. But here's um, a, I, I don't think that's happening right now. And the problem is that it's difficult to know whether you even need one. And this is not a bit license thing. It's, it's, it's a hobby horse. This is a regulation thing. The right thing to do today is knowable. The right thing to do is invite these companies into your jurisdiction. Don't require a license. But, but require so, that they so, register. So, require that they get on your radar. Yeah, require that we're, you know we're coming who towards they are, the end of so the time, though. So I want to ask: Can the states actually wait? So I've had the unfortunate no. I've had the unfortunate <laughs> pleasure of reading fifty different money transmission uh, state uh, legislation, and most of them reference monetary value any kind of transmission of monetary value. And you're not going to find a Bitcoin supporter in the world who's going to say that, no, Bitcoin's not monetary value. It doesn't have monetary <laughs> value because it's self-defeatist. So uh, can they wait under the law? And if they can't, uh, or, or if they can, is it just through some sort of like withholding, some sort of discretion? And isn't that alarming for an innovator in itself to know that they could be dragged in at any moment for not having a money transmission license, which carries some severe federal uh, criminal liability. Um, but the regulator said, oh, well, we want to wait. Yeah. So, um, so it's, it's easy for me to say it doesn't work, because, but I don't really have a great solution. Because I do think that um, it is not, uh, for a lot of regulators in a lot of jurisdictions, it is not a tenable proposition just to sit back and watch. Um, because they have responsibilities under state law. Um, and for that matter, you know, practically speaking, you're sitting back and you're watching companies in your own state, in your own jurisdiction, doing business with consumers, and you're sitting and watching what if, you know, with or without any bad actors or whatever, what if something bad happens? The regulator has a responsibility, but if they haven't licensed you and they don't regulate you, they can't do anything about you. Um, and, and so that is the, the challenge with, um, with, with waiting and sitting back and watching. Um, I think that, uh, you know, though part of what you're saying in terms of inviting the, the companies in, I think that a lot, of, uh, a lot of virtual currency companies have been spending a lot of time talking with state regulators. I recognize that takes, you know, that is an investment of time and resources. And sometimes, um, many times over, correct? Sure. Multiple state regulators. Uh, yes, yes, yeah. yes. Um, I mean, that, that is the reality of the, you know, federal system that we have here. Um, but the states, you know, that they, they get that. Um, they seek opportunities. And a lot of why we do our virtual did our virtual currency framework um, was to, you know, encourage consistency and uniformity. Um, and you know the states and other areas of non-bank regulation have also implemented technologies to help continue to drive um, that consistency and uniformity. And the last thing I'll say, because I know that time is up here, is that you know what regulators try to do is they try to understand the risks um, and um, and try to mitigate for the risks or try to understand if their regulated entities know the risks and are able to manage the risks of their business. Because we also get that. You know, if there's no risk taking, you know, at a certain degree, you know, that is how people make money, and that's how innovation and entrepreneurship happens. Um, final word from from the rest of you. Um, I I would be curious, and none of you need to answer. Some of you have clients in this space. Some of you might be a, a person in the space yourself. How many states do you think you've talked to to ask if you need a license, uh, roughly? Um, all of them. All of them. 
Yeah, I, I, I think that there needs to be a dialogue among the states, that, that, uh, between industry and the states. That, that I agree with wholeheartedly. Um, I think that some states may wait only with the notion of, is this too small for us to get involved with right now? I think that's the only place where you're going to see the pause. Would part. you would you be comfortable on behalf of your client with that sort of okay? Well, this state's just waiting. Do you need some no, kind I, of official statement from I, them? I think I think I think there needs to be a bright line between we are not going to regulate this right now and we are considering it. Uh, I know of at least one state that has now said that they regulate uh, this area under existing money transmission since the beginning of the technology, which isn't a statement that makes a lot of sense because <laughs> virtual currency is something that is or is almost ancient. Yeah, they, um, they, they were in the room with Satoshi Nakamoto. <laughs> they were in the room before that with Eagle. Exactly, <laughs> on the island of Yap with the, with the, with the, with, with with the, the stones. Um, you know, I, I think that if a state is going to step in and regulate it, they need to say loudly, we're going to regulate and give time to leave um, or provide things like a safe harbor that allows people to operate while, uh, while, while, it's, while it's developing. And a federal safe harbor, would that be nice? <laughs> Is it possible? If we say it enough, maybe it'll happen. Federal safe harbor. <laughs> uh, just a, a closing note, not, not about this topic, but if, if you are interested in learning more about what states are doing and being proactive in, in actually bringing business to the state, learning about what's happening in the industry, um, the state of Delaware has just announced its uh, blockchain initiative, uh, which um, will conceivably cover some of these issues. So uh, details will be forthcoming on uh, and If you're curious about the, the details of each state and what they've done so far, Coin Center has a great spreadsheet, which is just a tracker of every state effort so far, mostly in the vein of uh, recharacterizing their money transmission statutes in order to cover these these technologies. So with that, we have some time for questions. I'm supposed to make an announcement that you should wait to be called on. <laughs> you should wait for the microphone so everyone can hear you. Uh, and you should announce your name and affiliation. And please, if, if you have a comment, please form it in the, in the form of a, a question. <laughs> at least, These at least, are our rules. <laughs> at least pretend it's a question. Yeah. Um, right there. Uh, yes, good morning. My name is Alan Pulsifer, and I'm here with uh, Credit Cash, a new cryptocurrency. And my question is, um, what can regulators do about companies that are in, say, Panama or Switzerland, and how does that impact their effectiveness and the competitiveness of U.S. companies? Companies like Mosa Fonseca or... <laughs> <laughs> Anybody? Uh, the international question. Uh, I, I suppose... Maybe to rephrase it somewhat, uh, if you have 50 states to go talk to in order to be an above-boards business here in the U.S. as a virtual currency company, will you rather go to Panama or will you just lose out to someone who's got lower overhead because they're in Panama? I, I would stay in the U.S. Um, I, I don't know. I would stay here. It's, you're, you have as a company a little bit of protection here, too. I mean, you're right. I think that there is some safety. And to be honest with you, we've heard a lot from our customers and from people in the industry that there's a certain level of distrust. I think a lot happened around Mt. Gox, um, around 
companies that are who knows where they're located or who knows what they're yeah not that knows. Japan's unknown but they certainly didn't know about Bitcoin certainly, at the time yeah right, right. but there are some great companies that are in Panama Bitcoin what, what what about the the uh, countries that are not um, perhaps opportunities for regulatory arbitrage that we wouldn't want because they're poorly uh, regulated or poorly governed jurisdictions but something like the United Kingdom um, I, I I think this is where potentially the U.S. could lose out uh, I think that it would be wonderful if there was some sort of federal uh, solution to this, a federal solution that fostered innovation, that, that um, was pro this technology. I just don't know who that body would be. Uh, you know, the OCC right now has the FinTech white paper that is out, um, that, that, that they're accepting comment on. CFPB C yeah. could only have so much... But at the same time, I mean, isn't there was so much going on about like the Isle of Man and Jersey um, being safe havens for Bitcoin blockchain companies? But I don't know one company that was like, you know what, let's move. Yeah, the same debate comes up in the, yeah, in, the I mean, in the question of why are all the businesses located, tech businesses located in San Francisco with all of these zoning regulations, high rent, high everything, and. And okay. it, 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 this is a larger conversation. There, for a there is an explanation audience, for that, yeah. though. There is an explanation. Those are unregulated businesses, largely. That's largely unregulated. There are a few hotspots, PayPal and, and the, the like. But realistically, boots on the ground, when my clients ask me, Marco, should we home in London or New York City if we're going to be a regulated industry? If we're going to be in a regulated industry, if we're going to be a regulated business? And if we home in... New York City, we have to get 50 different licenses, and we have to get, uh, and we have to accomplish federal compliance. Why don't we just home in London and then accomplish federal compliance and ignore the states? Because realistically, are the states really going to come after us in London? Is there is there a single state that has a budget to, to do that? Please. The answer is yes, but the risk is just not that high. So block, block, I, that is, that is, I, I, blockchain's I not Uber, and the DFS is not the Taxi and Limousine Commission, or yeah. FinCEN is not the taxi. <laughs> I, I the think, penalties I think, are. I think there's also almost a comfort level where if a regulator is trying to wrestle with the space and figure out where exactly they should step in, and there's a sense that a reputable regulator somewhere else has the waterfront covered, it becomes a lower priority. Well, we should, that, we I think that's right, but it's it's not just London. It's it's Moscow. It's it's Estonia. It's you know, there's a whole spectrum of these countries, and the and the, the real politic of it is that yes, of course, companies do it. A lot of my clients do. Take another question, right here. Thanks, Peter. Uh, my name is Mark Hochstein. I'm the editor of American Banker. Uh, this question's primarily for Melanie, but also it'd be interesting to hear perspectives from Dana and Marco. A perennial uh, challenge for startups in this space has been it, number one, getting, and number two, get, uh, keeping a depository uh, bank account. Um, uh, and, you know, de-risking is a global phenomenon that's hit a lot of different industries, but uh, uh, probably none more so than cryptocurrency. Um, has it gotten easier or harder or stayed the same in the last few years? And um, where do you think that the bank's reticence stems from? Is this, a, you're asking a question about having, holding a bank account, right? Yeah, get, yeah getting, getting a bank um, account. So we didn't have any problems. Um, but to be fair, we do not hold a database of keys and we do not hold people's Bitcoin. Um, but at the same time, you put Bitcoin on anything and all of a sudden you're a um, far riskier business. 
I have had a lot of problems with insurance um, because we actually build hardware and we build a product. Um, it's been very difficult to get product insurance, mm. and so that's something a lot of people don't talk about. Um, that's very that's been the most difficult thing for us. Our bank has been fantastic, and um, they pretty much just check in with us to make sure that. Um, they will hear things in the news and send us an email and what are you doing about this and as long as we have a good enough answer for them. Um, we've had a really great relationship and have had zero problems and I started this company two years ago and we've had the same bank uh, since then. But at the same time I do know other people are having problems. The situation remains bleak. There are There is one bank with a, in the country with a sophisticated system and process for bringing in Bitcoin businesses, pure custodians of funds, regulated industry. There is there's one bank with um, a well-developed set of policies and procedures for that. We represent them. We do their AML work. Um, there is maybe half of another bank and half of another bank that once dipped their toes in and uh, is now trying to dip their toes in. Um, it, it's bleak. Um, it's. It's a question, honestly, at bottom, it's a question of whether the juice is worth the squeeze. Do we develop these policies and procedures? Do we, go, do we take on experienced personnel with, with, real, with a real understanding and talent in this area? Do we risk our licenses? Do we uh, invite uh, scrutiny from our regulators? Also, that we can take on a couple of small startups? Yeah. It's, it's not impossible to do this. People are doing it. The question is, can you make money doing it? Yeah. Which and is always the, the ultimate question. And I think I, it's, not, it's not just a problem here. It's a problem with money transmitters across the board. Um, and I think that it, 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 it's exactly they don't know what their regulator's position is going to be. Um, I think that there are issues that are unique to Bitcoin, such as issues around knowing your customer's customer, that kind of give them pause. Um, but again, issues that people have found solutions to. Um, there are challenges. Every new form of value transfer has challenges. The, 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 these are not insurmountable. What I think is funny is that um, among my peers in the space, people will ask, who's, your, who's banking you? And no one will, no one <laughs> says. So it's kind of like a competitive advantage. Nobody. Uh, we, I, we do everything with Bitcoin. Yeah. <laughs> no, but it's, but it's true. And actually, um, we were speaking to, we were thinking about adding an additional bank, and they asked us not to say who, we, who was banking us. So it's weird. Um, this gentleman right here. Thank you. Um, I'm Dong Hei from the International Monetary Fund. Um, I enjoyed the conversation very much. My question is that since you deal with consumers, what is the motive of holding, of holding Bitcoins or other cryptocurrencies for the moment? Do you see momentum of uh, it being really used as a medium of exchange or unit of account? Let's say one day, maybe in Amazon, you can quote the price of an iPad you know, instead of $500, you could have like three Bitcoins. Is that happening anywhere? Or at the moment, it's really for speculative investment purposes? No, absolutely. Okay. I mean, there's a number of companies um, who, I'm blanking on the name of the company, the one that lets you buy. Purse. Thank you. 
All I'd say was the one that lets you buy. buy. (laughs) Um, Yeah, there's a great company called Purse.io that lets you buy things on Amazon, incredible discounts um, on Amazon in Bitcoin. And there's plenty of places around the internet that I buy things in Bitcoin. Um, Have we seen a lot of merchants around, you know, cities accept it? I mean, it's kind of, no, not really. Um, But most of the people that hold Bitcoin, um, at least our customers are holding it not for speculative reasons. Um, our, obviously, our institutional partners are all holding it for speculative reasons or um, because it represents some other sort of digital asset. Um, but yeah, I mean, the, the transaction volume is still increasing. So at blockchain, we uh, are, are the largest provider of wallet software out there. So we have a particular perch upon which to sit that we can see this activity. And the answer is resoundingly yes. People are actually using Bitcoin. Uh, They are actually transacting in Bitcoin. We see the activity, we see the charts, we run an API. We can can literally meter the kind of activity that's happening and it is up and to the right, huge month over month growth, huge year over year growth. Um, It's not here not here in the United States. So uh, if you look, uh, if you were to, you know, take a look at a map, you see in Western Europe, uh, North America, people are primarily, seem to primarily be using Bitcoin, or at least the growth that we see is uh, as, as, as an investment vehicle. They, they believe that there, there is, there is hope that there will be something that the price will continue to go up, right? shade a little farther away from that and you have uh, Asia. And in Asia, uh, especially in China, we see Bitcoin being used primarily as a speculative asset. Not a, n- not a long-term investment, but uh, folks who are trying to make money off of the volatility. It is uh, darn near gambling. Um, but then you see places uh, in South America, Eastern Europe, Russia, where the currency is just not that great. And it is a tremendous store of value there. It is also uh, a functional transactional currency there. Uh, so people would rather see this, right, than this. Yeah. Uh, and it, that, is, that, is, that is tremendously yeah. attractive. Be your own bank really means something different yeah. in some It areas really does, where people don't yeah. trust their bank, banks implicitly. Here we, you know, we, we make... Uh, nasty comments about our banks, but we still <laughs> trust them. We still give them our money. In South America, in Eastern Europe, these things aren't uh, as common. But you have to remember, this is how uh, it. Kind of... no, let's say in Russia, why would anybody use Bitcoin? How do you I we actually had a we should just speaking to um, a customer about this. Bitcoin's really easy to get. Um, it's the barrier to it is so low, and it's very easy to transact in. Um, so around the world, especially in Russia, when we were, there was a time we were matching um, the price of Bitcoin to the price of the ruble, or the value of the ruble. Um, I mean, and Bitcoin won out. I mean, this is why people are using it in places like that. Um, and, I don't know, it's easy. Okay, we have time for uh, maybe two questions. I'm going to have two people ask the questions, and then we'll answer them quickly. Um, Lady right here. 
Thank you. Um, I'm Mirena Paricio from J1 and Partners. I think it's a fascinating discussion. Could, could you hold the microphone a little sure. closer and speak loudly? Yes, thank you. So this is all about consumer protection and financial services, which is highly regulated. And consumer protection is very basic principles of risk awareness and deposit warranties schemes, right? Um, the technology be behind your business uh, is really complicated, but the principles are quite simple. So my question is, as a storage of value, what do you do to inform your customers of the risk awareness that, you know, I mean, you can be hacked and maybe maybe it's a low risk, but there is some risk that, that you can be hacked and they lose their investment and um, that they don't have any deposit warranty scheme. Because, I mean, to me, it's like kind of we are, we are thinking about, you know, completely unregulated industry, but at the end of the day, you are providing ancillary financial services or financial services. So some time of awareness and transparency should be provided. Oh, so what, what sort of disclosures right? do you give? Uh, and then uh, one more question right here. So this is a question that's kind of a follow-up from the gentleman from the IMF. Um, the, oh, and I'm Brian Broberg. I'm from New Freedom, Pennsylvania, town of about 3,000 people. I just had indoor plumbing put in my house about a, six months ago. So this is a really complicated topic. <laughs> so you have internet before plumbing? <laughs> yes, yeah, so we did. Your that's priorities why, are in order then. Work. I mean, if you have a bank account in your pocket before you have indoor plumbing, then that's pretty cool. So uh, it sounds to me like the coin of the realm isn't so much the American consumer, because even though I didn't have indoor plumbing, I have 10 banks in my town. Yeah. So I'm not the underserved, unserved customer. So the real customer seems to be overseas. So how is this regulatory framework going to um, slow down the process of U.S. Bitcoin companies going out there and getting that customer? Is, that, is it just going to slow things down or, or will it be part of the solution? Okay, so, so there's two questions on the table. Uh, what kind of disclosures do you offer your customers? And then also, to what extent would U.S. regulations slow down the, the uh, 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 adoption of these tools by the people who need them most in other jurisdictions? Oh, I guess that's my question. <laughs> um, so we offer full transparency on our cold storage partner where that key is being stored, and they have a relationship with that provider. Do they um, understand what cold storage is? We actually tell them, we give them the option to hold their own cold storage key if they want, and for them to do that, we actually make them go through an incredible lengthy document that explains what cold, like what you actually have to do and all the problems with storing so your own. There's a lot built into the oh, user interface. Lot, yeah, we recommend that, for the average person to let us deal with the cold storage um, just because, it, I mean, if you lose it, you're done. We can't step in anymore. Um, so, is, is complicating the user interface at sometimes at odds with gaining users, though? Oh, yeah, absolutely. That's why we've simplified it. and we. Can you simplify it but still have a meaningful disclosure? Well, you can have disclosure and it can still be simple, right? I mean, disclosure is basically... 
this is what's happening with your funds. And it's very simple. It's a picture with three different places and three different keys. Um, so that's great. And if they want to read more about it, we have documentation for that. Um, but to get back to the question, we have full transparency of where the keys are being stored. Um, if there's any problem with the cold storage company, for example, if they go out of business, we have a plan in place. If we go out of business, there's a plan in place to protect um, people's funds still. And we don't even hold really any of the keys. So I think right. that's really important. I think it's a great question that isn't asked enough. Um, so the regulated companies have uh, specific disclosures that they must make. Right? The unregulated companies uh, don't, and it's up to them. Right? So blockchain.info is an unregulated company. Uh, they intend to stay that way. Um, so one of the best ways to stay that way is to address your risks yourself. Um, and so I, I think it's important that, that to, to, to understand that as a software company, you, if you're asking a company like blockchain to express, to disclose its risks, you have to understand who its, who its audience is. And mostly the folks who are using blockchain.info, we've run surveys on this, are sophisticated customers. They are, they are geeks. That's most of the people who are using Bitcoin. Now you might say, well, yeah, but you want that to change, right? You want it to go mainstream. How is it going to go mainstream unless you disclose the risks? In fact, we do disclose the risks. We disclose, uh, we, 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 are, we are open source, right? This is, this is the, the starting point. It's not the end point but it's the starting point. If you are a fellow geek, you can go to GitHub, you can read our code, you can see precisely what it does. Now, does everybody do that? No, small amount of people do that. But the, the small amount of people who do have very, very <laughs> loud voices. <laughs> and uh, proxies for other people's and interests. And are proxies for other people. But nonetheless, you know, we have a detailed frequently asked questions section, um, and we do disclose risks. Realistically, those risks are a whole lot lower. Uh, I'm afraid we didn't get to your question and we didn't get to a number of questions, but um, the panel will, will be around, I'm sure, throughout the day. So please, uh, please thank them for, for sharing. <clears throat>